Stand clear of the closing doors, please. This is the Kleidocast. Welcome back to the Kaleidocast, dear listeners. We find ourselves at a crossroads with Allison missing. I want to find her, but I know she'd want me to stick to the recording schedule. So I had no choice but to team up with someone or something that calls itself Val the Vegan. Present. Ah! Don't sneak up on me like that. I'm going to have to edit that part out. You're recording that odd mothering. We don't all have to shout to make ourselves heard. But I'm not shouting. It's my new innovation for the podcast. Science fiction and fantasy, ASMR, or spasmer. I'm going to lull the audience into a state of total relaxation by reading the complete works of Lovecraft while tapping on this hairbrush. Nylarthep, the crawling chaos. Tram, your son. But if you want my help with your podcast, we're going to have to talk about food as well as literature. Make me a brie sandwich. Excuse me? I mean, in an impossible brie sandwich. A challenge, none? I can do better than that. Try some of this vegetable stew I made. I call it the collards out of space. And eat it close to the mic. Metrics show 17% of our listeners are into that. This is the part where Allison would be like, Veronica, at what point does this cross the line into pornography? And I'd be like, this is how you get subscribers. Now stop asking questions and shampoo the mannequin head. It's uh, Trebon, actually. I'm going to take back some things I said about you, Veronique. Why don't you go ahead and introduce our first story while I set up the ads? Take all the time you need. I've got everything completely under control. I'm going to take back some things I said about you, Veronique. Don't worry, folks. I'm on to him. He has something to do with Allison's disappearance, and I'm going to find out what. But in the meantime, here's special deliveries by Carlos Luis. Delgado. Special Deliveries by Carlos Luis Delgado. Narrated by Wilson Fowley. The Epicurious app dispatched Juan Lazaro all over Brooklyn. Of all the delivery zones, he tried avoiding East Bush Sty the most. Bad traffic, worse tips, and blinding e-murals advertising eight, nine, and ten-bedroom lofts available today. But some nights, disappointment was the only thing on the menu. His customer seemed to agree. This is unacceptable, she said the moment she opened the door. You're late. Is the food even warm? Juan wasn't late, and the e-bike's storage kept deliveries warm, but there was no point arguing. With all those fast-fashion wood-elf mods, pointed ears, and golden hair vines included, she didn't look like much of a tipper. Still, he handed her a bag of lembas and hummus from Elrond's Middle Terranean restaurant and said, Order for... Eoleothanathel? Juan's smartwatch buzzed against his wrist. He stifled a yawn. 
Another customer wanting an overpriced, fantasy-themed meal in the middle of the night. How long since he last slept? It was micro-hurricaning and 3 a.m., and Juan had a wife, Marta, waiting for him. A wife with three rounds of antivirals left, and 2,000 credits short of covering the next one. Juan tapped accept and turned as Wish.com Galadriel slammed her door shut. Of course, no tip. His sigh threatened to drag him to the floor, but Juan shook it off, made the sign of the cross, and headed out into the night. Rain pelted his plastic poncho as Juan pulled up to a medieval revivalist condo overlooking the East River. Lightning split the sky, and he wondered how a stone tower was considered luxurious. Concern only crept in the moment his customer answered the door. Sickly sweet fumes filled the hallway. Juan didn't understand why some people were obsessed with death. His cousin Anna was goth, but she only went as far as wearing black wedding dresses every day. But this customer must have paid a fortune to wither himself down to jerky. Order for Chad Thule? Juan asked. Chad Thule glared, with eyes made to look like two green flames burning in empty sockets. His voice rasped as if he'd swallowed a pound of sand. The few words Juan caught weren't English or Spanish. Juan held out the bag. Garlic crumble phoenix wings? The aroma of garlic and herbs pouring from the hot bag didn't mix well with the rancid hallway stench. The skeletal customer hissed, recoiling from the outstretched bag. The holotorches lining the hallway dimmed, and a sudden chill bit through Juan Lazaro's thermals. Fool, his customer said, I have a phoenix allergy. Juan's lizard brain screamed for him to run. He eyed the distance between him and the elevator. I'm sorry? I did not order this. I ordered Rat Tartar from Sepulchre on Bedford Avenue. The restaurant bot packed the wrong order, and now Juan had a pissed-off customer and no tip. Another wasted night instead of spending it with his sick wife. What the hell was the point of working yourself to death if... Are you all right? Chad Thull rasped. Juan looked up from the stone floor, unclenching his shaking fist. Yes, he lied. I'm sorry for the mix-up. If you contact the app, they'll refund your money. Do you still want the order? He held out the bag. No, Chad Thule said. That's okay. I, I was really looking forward to the rat. Juan considered the disappointment crinkling Chad Thule's face. You know, if you like rat, Juan whispered, you'll, um die for Ambato's bounty on Metropolitan. Nobody roasts rodents like them. I'll put an order in for you. They deliver. I'll make sure they give you a discount. Chad Thule's modded eyes flared with hope. Then he disappeared around the door. The app on Juan's phone flashed delivery complete and a hefty tip. Enough to cover Marta's next round of antivirals. Juan gasped, collected himself, and shouted, Hey! Thank you so much! Chad Thule reappeared. The slightest trails of smoke trickled out from his green flaming eyes. I love the mods, Juan added. Uh, very spooky. Chad Thule smiled, and what must have been artisanally sharpened teeth gleamed yellow. I apologize for my previous outburst, he said. Phoenix meat cures wounds, and, well, look at me. But rat... 
Someone or something groaned from inside the penthouse. "'You can keep the wings,' Chad Thule said, then slammed the door shut. Juan Lazaro shuddered and turned to leave. In Brooklyn, the later it gets, the weirder it gets. But staying out for that last delivery had been worth it. Juan Lazaro called his sister-in-law at Ambato's bounty and put in the rich goth's order. Chad Thule thought he was getting rat delivered, but really it was guinea pig, an Ecuadorian specialty. Carlos Luis Delgado is a Brooklyn-based speculative fiction writer and editor. As a member of BSFW, he also leads workshops and writing classes. He's been previously published as part of My Father's Files, a mystery horror podcast. This is his second publication. to think of him as the gray, twisted, brittle monstrosity which persists more and more in troubling my sleep. I hardly dare turn around, dear listeners. After reading the complete works of Lovecraft, I shudder to even imagine what cyclopean being from beyond the far reaches of man's comprehension is even now lingering in the doorway. Veronica? Why are you sitting in the dark? Are you recording right now? Oh, it's just Allison. Wait, Allison? Where have you been? I was trapped in a featureless white room. I thought I was in an alternate reality, but then I followed this cat through a panel in the wall and it led out of my bathroom mirror. Cat? Oh, hi, Pickles. Uh, wait, Pickles? You're dead. I could have been dead. I've been calling and texting you for hours. I muted my phone. I couldn't have my shake-it-off ringtone play during my reading of Lovecraft's collected works. All of them? How long did that take? Oh, about 25 minutes. I cut out the racist parts. But who put you in this white void of horror? It was Val, wasn't it? It wasn't Val. It was my uncle's spell. And it wasn't a void of horror, it was just a room. Of horror? I don't think so. He just... I gotta sit down. Of course. Here, have some of the collards I made. They'll give you strength. Thanks, I'm starving. Hey, this is really good. Kinda heavy on the garlic, though. Yeah, I fed it to Val because garlic repels all kinds of monsters. Plus, it's a broad-spectrum antibiotic. But that's not important right now. You say it was your uncle Spell? Didn't I tell you about him? He's kind of the black sheep of the family. He was always off pursuing some crackpot theory. For a while, it was the Flat Earth. Then, it was the Hollow Earth. Then he combined the two? But we hadn't heard from him in years. So what was so important that he decided to show up again? My house. Apparently, it's some kind of gate between realms, and Val used it to come from his world to ours. Uncle Spell said something about pyramid schemes and human cloning, and he kept talking in the third person, like, I apologize. Audience, my niece Allison clearly doesn't get her intellect from my side of the family. 
just wow. But a hollow flat earth? How would that even work? Focus, Veronica. You were right about Val being evil. I told you. So he came here to infect our world with conspiracy theories and toxic masculinity? Not on my watch, Buster. Spell said Val came here because it was the only Brooklyn with a Junior's cheesecake. The conspiracy theories and toxic masculinity are incidental. Really? That tracks, actually. But look, now you got the gist. We have to smack Val down and save reality as we know it. And stream it live for our listeners. No one puts Brooklyn in the corner. Right after this story. You are still recording, right? Yes, ma'am. Here's How the Puka Came to New York City by Delia Sherman. How the Puka Came to New York City by Delia Sherman Narrated by Wilson Fowley Early one morning in the spring of 1855, the passengers from the Irish Maid out of Dublin Bay trudged down the gangway of the steam lighter Washington. Each of them carried baggage, clothes and boots, tools and household needments, leprechauns and hobs, fleas, and the occasional ghost trailing behind like a soiled veil. Liam O'Casey, late of Ballyno in County Down, brought a tin whistle and the collected poetry of J. J. Callanan, two shirts, and three handkerchiefs rolled into a knapsack, a small leather purse containing his savings, and a great black hound he called Madra, which is nothing more remarkable than dog in Irish. Liam O'Casey was a horse trainer by trade, a big handsome man with a wealth of greasy black curls that clustered around his neat small ears and his broad fair temples. His eyes were blue, his shoulders wide, and his smile might charm a holy sister out of her cloister. He'd the look of a rogue, a scallywag, faster with a blow than a quip, with an eye to the ladies and an unquenchable thirst for strong drink. Looks can be misleading. Liam had an artist's soul in his breast and a musician's skill in his fingers. One night in the hold of the Irish maid, with the seas running high and everyone below decks groaning and spewing out their guts, he pulled out his tin whistle and sent Molly's lament sighing sweetly through the fetid air. All through that long night he played, and if his music had no power to soothe the seas, it could soothe the terror of those that heard it and quiet the sobbing of more than one small child. After, the passengers of steerage were constantly at Liam to pull out his tin whistle for a slip jig or a reel. Liam was most willing to oblige, and might have been the best-loved man on board, were it not for his great black dog. Madra was a mystery. As a general rule, livestock and pets were not welcome on the tall ships that sailed between the old world and the new. They made more mouths to feed, more filth to clean up. Birds in cages were tolerated, but a tall hound black as the fabled black dog, with long sharp teeth and eyes yellow as piss— it was the wonder of the world he'd been led aboard. And once aboard, it was a wonder he survived the journey. How can a dog be seasick? Liam's neighbor, a man from Cork, pulled his blanket up around his nose as Madra retched and whined. Are you sure it's nothing catching? Liam stroked Madra's trembling flank. He's a land-loving dog, I fear. I'd have left him behind if he'd have stood for being left. Perhaps he'll be easier in my hammock." which proved to be the case, much to the amusement of the man from Cork. "'The boy's soft as what it is,' he told his card-playing cronies. "'Leave him be,' one of them said. "'Fluters and fiddlers are not like you and me.' And so Liam was left be, and so was Madra. But neither made any friends on the journey. 
When the Irish maid sailed into New York Harbor, New York Bay was wide as an inland sea to Liam's eyes, the early morning sun pouring honey over forested hills and warehouses and riverside mansions and a myriad of ships. Islands slid past the Washington on both sides, some wild and bare, some bristling with buildings and docks and boats. The last of these, only a stone's throw from Manhattan itself, was occupied by a round and solid edifice, like a reservoir or a fort, that swarmed with laborers like ants on a stony hill. "'Holy Mother of God!' said the man from Cork. "'And what do you think of Dublin Bay after that?' With all of America spread out before him like a meal on a platter, and the seabirds welcoming him into port, Liam had no wish to think of Dublin Bay at all. He'd come to America to change his life, and he intended to do it thoroughly. Country-bred, he was determined to live in a city, surrounded by people whose families he did not know. He'd live in a house with more than one floor, none of them dirt, and burn coal in a stove that vented through a pipe. He'd eat meat once a week. As the lighter slowed, the hound at his feet reared himself, with some effort, to plant his forepaws on the Washington's rail and panted into the wind that blew from shore. After a moment, he sneezed and shook his head irritably. The corkman laughed. Seems your dog doesn't think much of the new world, Liam O'Casey. Better perhaps you should have left him in the old. Madra bared his fangs at that. For all the world, the corkman said, as though he spoke Gaelic like a Christian. Liam stroked the poor animal's ears while the lighter docked and the passengers of the Irish maid began to gather their bundles and their boxes, their ghosts and their memories, and staggered down the gangway. On the pier, customs officials herded them to a shed where uniformed clerks checked their baggage and their names against the ship's manifest. These formalities concluded, the new immigrants were free to start their new lives where and when they pleased. The lucky ones, the provident ones, embraced their families or greeted friends who had come to meet them and moved off, chattering. A group of the less well-prepared, including Liam and the man from Cork, lingered on the dock, uncertain where their next steps should take them. With a sinking heart, Liam looked about at the piled boxes, the coils of rope, wagons, the nets and baskets of fish, thinking he might as well have been on a wharf in Dublin. There was the same garbage and mud underfoot, the same air thick with the stink of rotting fish and salt and coal fires, the same dirty raw-handed men loading and unloading wagons and boats and shouting to each other in a babel of strange tongues. "'That'll be you in a week or so,' the corkman said, slapping Liam on the shoulder hard enough to raise dust. "'I'm for the far west, where landlords are as rare as hen's teeth and the streams run with gold.' A new voice joined the conversation, in Irish, happily, since most of his audience had only a dozen English words between them. "'You'll be needing a place to sleep the night, I'm thinking. Come along of me and I'll have you suited in a fine, clean, economical boarding-house before the cat can lick her ear.' The newcomer was better fed than the dock-workers, his frock coat only a little threadbare, and his linen next door to clean. He had half a pound of pomade on his hair and a smile that would shame the sun. But when the boarding-house runner saw Madra, the sun went behind a cloud and he kicked the dog square in the ribs. "'Oi!' Liam roared, shocked out of his usual good humour. "'What ails you to be kicking my dog?' "'Dogs are dirty creatures, as all the world knows, as thick with fleas as hares.' "'A good deal thicker,' the man from Cork said, and everyone snickered, for after five weeks on shipboard, Madra's coat was patchy and dull, with great sores on his flank and belly. The boarding-house runner grinned, flashing a golden tooth. "'Just so. 
Mistress O'Leary'd not be thanking me for bringing such a litany of miseries and stinks into her good clean house. A doorway's good enough for the pair of you. And he turned and herded his catch away inland. Liam sat himself down on a crate, his knapsack and his mangy dog at his feet, and wondered where he might find a glass and a bite in this great city, and how much they'd cost him. "'Yon was the villain of the world,' Madra remarked. "'Stinking of greed and goose-fat. You're well shot of him.' "'The goose-fat I smelled for myself,' Liam answered. "'The greed I took for granted. Still, a bed for the night and a guide through the city might have been useful. Are you feeling any better at all now we've come to shore?' Madra growled impatiently. "'I'm well enough to have kept my ears to the wind and my nose to the ground for news of where we may find a welcome warmer than yon gold-toothed cony-catchers.' "'And where would that be, Madra? In Dublin, perhaps? Or back home in Ballino, where I wish to heaven I'd never left?' The hound sighed. "'Don't be wishing things you don't want. Not in front of me. Had I my full strength, you'd be back in Ballino before you'd taken another breath, and sorry enough to be there after all the trouble you were put to leaving in the first place.' He heaved himself wearily to his feet. "'There's a public-house north of here, run by the kind of folk who won't turn away a fellow-countryman and his faithful hound.' "'You're not my hound,' Liam said, shouldering his pack. "'I told you back in Ballino. I did only what I'd do for any living creature. You owe me nothing.' "'I owe you my life.' Madra lifted his nose to sniff the air. "'That way.' Moving as though his joints hurt him, Madra stalked away from the water with Liam strolling behind, gawking left and right at the great brick warehouses of the seaport of New York. The puka was not happy. His eyes ran, his lungs burned, his skin galled him as if he'd been stung by a thousand bees, and the pads of his paws felt as though he'd walked across an unbanked fire. He was sick of his dog shape, sick of this mortal man he was tied to, sick of cramped quarters with no space to run and the stink of death that clung to mortals like a second skin. Most of all, he was sick, almost to dissolution, of the constant presence of cold iron. He'd thought traveling with Liam O'Casey was bad, with the nails in his shoes and the knife in his pack, but Dublin had been worse. The weeks aboard the Irish maid had been a protracted torture, which he'd survived only because Liam had given over his hammock to him. This new city was worst of all, as hostile to the fair folk as the most pious priest who'd ever sung a mass. Yet in this same city, on this poisonous dock, the puka had just met a selkie in his man-shape, hauling boxes that stank of iron as strongly as the air stank of dead fish. The puka had smelled the selkie, sea air with an animal undertang of fur and musk, and followed his nose to a group of longshoremen loading crates onto a dray. As he sniffed curiously about their feet, one of them grabbed the puka by the slack of his neck and hauled him off behind a stack of barrels as though he'd been a puppy. "'What the devil kind of thing are you?' asked the selkie in the broadest of Scots. "'I'm a puka,' the puka said with dignity, "'from County Down. "'Fresh off the boat and rotten with the iron sickness, no doubt.' "'Well, you're a lucky wee doggy to have found me, and that's a fact.' The puka's ears pricked. "'You have a cure for iron sickness?' "'Not I,' the selkie said. "'There's a she-woman runs a lager saloon in five points. "'All the Gaelic folk who land here must go to her. "'Or die, which you may do for nothing.' The selkie pulled a little wooden box from his pocket and opened it. "'Take a snort.' The puka filled his nose with a scent of thin beer, sawdust, and fairy magic. One last question of your kindness, he said, 
Would a mortal be welcome at the she-woman's saloon at all? The Selkie replaced the box. Could be. What's it to you? We're by way of being companions, said the Puka. Dana, tell me he knows ye for what ye are. The Selkie whistled. That would be a tale worth the hearing. Tell it me, and we'll call my help well paid. The Puka knew very well that his tale was a small enough price for such valuable information, but it was a price he was reluctant to pay. Stories in which he was the hero, and the mortal his endlessly stupid dupe, those he told with pleasure to whoever would hear them. A story in which the stupidity had been his own was a different pair of shoes entirely. Still, a favor must be repaid. I will so, he said. The selkie bared strong white teeth. But not just now, I have work to do. Shall we say before midsummer? Ask for Ian. Everybody kens me here on the docks. Oh, and dinna fash yourself, or yon mortal. The woman'll not harm him, if he keeps a civil tongue in his head. Oh, he's civil enough, the puka had answered somewhat sourly. He is the gentleman of the world, he is the creature. Which was why, as much as the puka resented Liam O'Casey, he could not dislike him, and why, after six months in Liam's company, he was far from home, iron-sick and mangy, and too feeble to shift his shape, burdened with an unpaid blood debt, and no prospect of paying it. The puka had a nose as sharp as a kelpie's teeth, but lower New York was a maze of bewildering and distracting smells. The streets reeked of dung and garbage, of dogs marking their territory, and the sweat of horses pulling heavy drays. The puka was startled out of what remained of his fur when a scrawny, half-wild sow squealed at him. Prudently, the puka whined and wagged his tail submissively. The sow snorted at him and trotted on. Bowing to a pig! If the iron sickness did not finish him, surely shame would do the job. The puka thought he'd like to kill Liam for bringing him here. But not until he'd saved his miserable life. Liam had been hungry and thirsty when he got off the Washington at dawn. By noon he was tired and footsore as well, and as bewildered as he'd ever been in his life. Listlessly he watched Madra sniff the door of Maeve McDonough's saloon, which looked no different to him than the fifty other establishments he'd sniffed along the way, except for a sign in the window offering a free lunch. Liam read the fare on offer, cold meat, pickles, onions, and sent up a short and heartfelt prayer to the Virgin that their journey might end here. He sent a second prayer of thanks when Madra pricked his ears, raised his tail, and trotted down the filthy steps and into the dark room beyond. Upon inquiry at the wooden counter, Liam learned that the free lunch came at the cost of two five-cent beers, which he was happy to pay, even though the beer was poor, sour stuff and the meat more gristle than fat. While he ate, a woman well supplied with dark hair and bold eyes and an expanse of rosy brown skin above the neck of her flowered gown cuddled up, giving him an excellent view of her breasts and a noseful of her musky scent. "'Like what you see, Boyle. I can arrange for a closer look.' Head swimming, he was on the point of agreeing when another woman's voice spoke, tuneful and sweet as a silver bell. The whore hissed, showing teeth a thought too long and pointed for beauty, and slid back into the crowd of drinkers. Startled, Liam looked up into the face of the tall, red-headed woman on the other side of the bar. She'd a faded green woolen shawl tied about her bosom, and a look about her he was coming to recognize after six months in the puka's company. A luminous look, as though her skin were fairer, her hair more lustrous, her eyes more lambent, her whole person altogether more light-filled than an ordinary woman's. It was not a look he'd expected to see in the new world. "'Welcome to Five Points,' said the woman, 
There's a fine dog you have. Liam looked down to see Madra sitting by his leg, panting cryptically. Oh, he's not mine, he said. Not in the way of ownership. Our paths lie together for a while, that's all it is. The woman's smile broadened. Liam noted, with relief, that her teeth were remarkable only in being uncommonly white and even. A good answer, young man. You may call me Maeve McDonough. I am the proprietress of this place. You are welcome to drink here. Should you be looking for a place to lay your head this night, I've beds above, twenty cents a night, or four dollars a month, to be paid up front, if you please. Liam laid the silver coins in Maeve's hand with a bow that made her laugh like a stream over rocks, then recklessly ordered another beer and carried it towards a knot of Irishmen who looked as though they'd been in New York a week or two longer than he. The puka yawned nervously and licked at a sore on his flank. It seemed to him that it, like everything else in this forsaken place, tasted of iron. How many nails were in this building? How many iron bands around the barrels of beer? He could sense a stove, too, and most of the customers, unless he was much mistaken, were armed with steel knives. Some even carried pistols. It was almost unbearable. It was unbearable, and the puka was beginning to realize that there was nowhere in this city where he might escape from the pain that gnawed at his bones. Hemmed in by mortals, surrounded by iron, with more mortals and iron outside on the street, the puka was ready to bite everyone around him, and keep on biting until he died or the pain went away, whatever came first. A cool hand touched his head. A fresh scent, as of spring fields after a rain, soothed his hot nose and cleared the red mists from his brain. The puka looked up into the amused green eyes of a she-woman. "'I am called Maeve,' she said. "'Follow me.' The room Maeve led the puka to was, if anything, darker and hotter than the saloon itself. Stacked beer barrels lined the walls, and a complex apparatus of glass and tin on a table smelled strongly of raw spirits. "'A puka?' Maeve said, setting down her lantern. "'I've not seen your like before on this side of the wide ocean. A word for you, my heart. The city's no place for a creature of the bogs and wilds.' "'Yet here I am,' the puka said irritably, "'on the point of paying with my life for the privilege, too.' "'Well, perhaps it needn't be as costly as that.' Maeve regarded him gravely. "'What is your life worth, Puka?' "'I haven't much to give you,' the Puka said. "'Would you accept my everlasting gratitude?' Maeve laughed. "'What a joy it is to have a trickster to bargain with, even one half dead. I'd save you for the pure pleasure of your company, but that would be bad business. Come, give me a dozen hairs from your tail that I may call upon you at my need.' "'Goodwill is good business, lady. Three hairs will buy you my respect and affection, as well as my service.' Seven hairs I'll take, and no less, unless you're willing to give the mortal over to my hands to do with as I will.' The puka hesitated. "'Much as it galls me to admit it, there's a small matter of a blood debt between us.' He sighed heavily. Seven times I'll come to you, then. You drive a hard bargain, missus.' "'Sure, and it's a hard city for the fair folk to live in.' Then Maeve went to a shelf and brought back a charm, which she wove into the thick fur of the puka's ruff. The charm bit like flies and nettles. The puka whined and scratched at his neck. "'It won't help you if you get rid of it,' Maeve said mildly. "'It's tear it off and die, or endure it and live. It becomes less irksome with time.' "'I'll endure it,' said the puka. Out in the saloon, Liam was learning a number of facts. "'Item.' Work, although possible to come by, was not as plentiful in New York as poor men eager to do it. 
Item. What work there was stretched from dawn to dusk, taxed a man's back more than his mind, and paid barely enough to keep body and soul together. Item. Not all the poor men looking for work in New York were mortal. Among Liam's new drinking companions were a midget in a bottle-green coat sporting a pair of coppery sideburns to rival Prince Albert's, a boyo in a threadbare moleskin with black curls hanging down around his ears, and a shortish man with curly golden hair and a clay pipe between his teeth. Mindful of his purse, Liam refused a bet on a race between a horse and a pig and an opportunity to invest his savings in a sure money-making business. But when the golden-haired man pressed him for his name and county, Liam bethought him that his purse was not the only thing in danger here. He made a dive for his knapsack and withdrew his tin whistle. "'Anybody for a tune?' The midget brightened. "'Do you know whiskey before breakfast?' "'Do I not?' said Liam, and began to play. If he hadn't been tipsy, and perhaps a little more than tipsy, it's likely he'd have made a pig's ear of it, with his heart thundering in his breast and the spit dry in his mouth. As it was, whiskey before breakfast came pouring out of his tin whistle as clear and clean as a May morning in Ballino, with all the birds singing. The midget tapped his tiny, beautifully shod feet. The boyo hooked his elbows over the shelf nailed along the wall and sighed. The small man laid down his clay pipe and clapped time. Whiskey before breakfast rippled out over the room until the whole saloon was listening to the bright notes skip through the rafters and ring against the stone bottles ranged behind the bar. After playing the air three times through, Liam dropped the tin whistle from his lips and opened his eyes. "'Another!' the midget said hoarsely. Liam gave them The Witch of the Glen, and The Lady's Pantaloons, and I Buried My Wife and Danced on Top of Her, which Jig had them dancing as they roared out the words. And then he segued, without thinking about it, into an air he'd made before he'd decided to make his fortune in America. When he was done, the boyo embraced him, dripping salt tears on the top of his head. "'All hail the fluter!' the midget shouted and lifted his tankard. "'The fluter!' the others echoed. A tankard appeared at his hand. When he drained it, another took its place. Liam wet his mouth and played again. By and by, Liam felt a nudge at his knee and looked down to see Madra looking, if possible, more miserable than he'd looked before, with a great mat of twigs and mud tangled in the fur at his neck and a wild look in his piss-yellow eyes. Liam tucked the whistle away and knelt. "'Is it well with you, Madra, my dear?' "'It is not so,' said Madra, irritably. "'How do you think it makes me feel?' "'responsible for you as I am, "'to see you hobnobbing with leprechauns "'and clericans and gankana "'and other such scrapings "'from the depths of the fairy barrel, "'and me no more fit to protect you "'than a day-old puppy.' "'Liam laughed. "'Is that what they are? "'Well, they seem to like my music well enough. "'They'll not harm me, I'm thinking, "'as long as I play for them.' "'Very likely,' said Madra dryly. "'Liam felt a hand upon his shoulder "'and looked up to see Maeve McDonough herself "'smiling down at him.' "'My thanks, sir, for the entertainment. "'You've put a thirst on my customers "'the like of which I've not seen since I came to these shores. "'I've sold enough drink this night to pay for your dinner. "'Yes, and your dog's, too, if he's a stomach for a bit of meat. "'Come eat it in the back room, away from this moither, "'and then you'd best take yourself off to bed "'before they suck you dry entirely.' "'Left to himself, Liam might have taken the dinner "'and foregone the bed, so flown was he on beer and praise "'and his own dancing music.' but he'd Madra to think of, and Madra looked to be on his last legs. So Liam followed Maeve into the back room, where he absorbed a bowl of quite reasonable stew, as well as Madra's portion, which the poor beast was far too ill to eat. 
Indeed, the puka could not have been worse. The charm Maeve had given him to counteract the iron sickness bit into his neck like a wolf. His muscles trembled, his vision blurred, and he'd a mighty thirst on him that water did nothing to assuage. In all the long years of his existence, he'd never suffered so, not even when he'd stumbled into a steel trap set for poachers, the which he'd been saved from by a stale-drunk horse-trainer named Liam O'Casey. By the time Liam had eaten, the puka was too weak and sore even to stand. Clucking, Liam scooped him up in his arms and carried him bodily up the rickety stairs to the rooms above. The state of Maeve's saloon had given Liam a tolerably accurate notion of the accommodations she had to offer. It was a dismal enough apartment, low-ceilinged and airless, with a door at each end. The side walls were lined with wooden shelves upon which Maeve's borders were stacked four high and two deep. Liam found an unclaimed space on the lowest shelf, near the far door and right over the piss-pot, and tucked Madra into it. He fit himself as best he could around the dog's burning, shivering body, and fell asleep. Thanks to the excitement of the day, and the number of five-cent beers he'd downed, Liam slept heavily. He woke once when his fellow boarders retired, drunk and stumbling on the rickety ladders to the upper sleeping shelves. He woke once again when someone trod on his hand climbing down to use the piss-pot. The third time he woke, it was to the piteous whines of a dog in agony. Liam opened his eyes to see a dozen tiny glowing creatures. Their gauzy wings whirred as they hovered about Madra, pulling at his ears and whiskers and the small hairs about his eyes. Liam shooed them away like bees, and like bees they turned upon him and pinched at his face with sharp little fingers. Owning himself defeated, Liam gathered Madra in his arms and bore him carefully down the stairs to the saloon. And there the pair of them spent the balance of the night, curled on a floor only a little fouler than the sleeping shelf above. In the grey dawn, the puka woke to the toe of a boot in his ribs and Maeve's face looking down at him. "'The top of the morning to you, trickster,' she said. "'And how are you finding yourself this lovely spring day?' The puka levered himself to his feet. His body was sore, but no longer racked with pain, and the burning gleed upon his neck had cooled a degree or perhaps more. He yawned hugely and shook himself from ears to tail. "'I'm alive,' he said." which comes as a pleasant surprise. As to the rest, I wish I were back in Erin, deep in a nice bog, and a rainy night descending. And so do I, trickster, so do I. For a moment, Maeve allowed her true face to show through the glamour, gaunt and fierce as a mewed hawk. Now wake your mortal, trickster. I've the floor to sweep and the charms to make for any iron-sick folk who chance to wash up at my door the day. So the puka nudged Liam O'Casey with his nose and gave him to know it was time to be up and about. Liam awoke with a foul mouth, a griping in his belly, and an aching head. Dunking his head in a barrel of stale water did something to resign him to a new day. A five-cent beer and a slice of soda bread hot from the oven did more. Much fortified, Liam O'Casey set out into the April morning in search of employment, with Madra at his heel. Left to his own devices, Liam might have stopped to pass the time of day with someone, preferably a mortal like himself, who might give him advice a mortal could use. As it was, he could only follow Madra, trying not to get knocked down by a heavily laden cart, or trip over a feral pig, or run into a pushcart or one of the hundreds of grey-faced men on their way to work. He was hot and out of breath when Madra stopped in front of a big, square, clabbered warehouse. Liam looked up at the sign. Green's Fine Furniture. Est's 1840, 
Ebenezer Green prop. No doubt it's slipped your mind that I'm a horseman, Madra, not a carpenter. Madra heaved a sigh. There's a stable behind you, great idiot. I can smell it. Go on in now. It can't hurt to ask. Liam brushed down his jacket, straightened his cap, and walked into the warehouse. The place was busy as an ant's nest, with an army of roughly dressed men running about with raw lumber and finished furniture while a burly man in a loud silk waistcoat over his shirt sleeves and a pork pie hat shouted orders. Presuming this to be Ebenezer Green, Liam approached and greeted him in his best English. Mr. Green turned a pig-eyed glare on him. "'Speak American, Paddy, or get out. Better yet, do both. This is a know-nothing shop. We don't do business with mix and such-like trash.' The man's voice was flat and loud, his accent unfamiliar. His tone and look, however, were as clear as the finest glass goblet. "'I'll be bidding you good day, then,' Liam said. "'Mr. Know-Nothing, sir.' Then he turned on his heel and marched out. "'It seems a strange thing to be bragging of,' he said, as he and Madra left Green's fine furniture behind them. "'He certainly knows nothing about horses,' Madra said. "'Did you see his nags? Like harrows they were, draped in moth-eaten hides.' You're well out of there. The next stable Madra found was attached to a hauling company near the docks. It was run by Cornelius Vanderhoof, who, like all Dutchmen, didn't care what language a man spoke as long as he was willing to take a dollar in payment for ten hours of work. I've no need of a stable man, he told Liam kindly enough. I have two horse boys and that's all I need. All boys are good for is to feed and water and muck out, Liam said. I'd care for them like children, I would. Mr. Vanderhoof shook his head. "'Come back in May. I might have work for you if you can handle a team.' And so it went all the weary day. One livery stable proprietor had just hired someone. Another offered Liam fifty cents to shovel muck. Another shook his head before Liam even opened his mouth. "'It's April,' he said. "'Nobody will be hiring until summer. You're Irish, right? Why not carry bricks or dig foundations like the rest of your countrymen?' "'I'm a horse-trainer,' Liam said, hating the pleading note in his voice. "'I don't care if you're the king of County Down,' the liveryman said. "'Ostlers are a dime a dozen in these parts. "'You want to work with horses, take a train west.' As they emerged from the livery stable, Madra broke the heavy silence. "'It's getting on towards dusk. Shall we be heading home?' Liam looked at the heavy carts piled high with crates and boxes lumbering over the rutted streets at the ragged, grey-faced men plodding homeward in the fading light, at the street children, dirty and barefoot, lingering by pushcarts in hopes of a dropped apple or an unwatched cabbage. His ears rang with the rumble of wheels, the squeak of unoiled axles, the shouting and swearing and laughter. "'I have no home,' he said. "'Just now it seems to me I'll never have a home again.' He waited for Madra to call him a pitiful squinter, or prescribe a pint or a song to clear his mind but Madra just plodded down the street, head down and tail a-droop, as tired and discouraged as Liam himself. Being immortal, folk do not commonly find time hanging heavy on their hands. A day is but an eye-blink in their lives, a month can pass in the drawing of a breath. The puka had never imagined being as aware of the arc of the sun across the sky or the length of time separating one meal from the next as he had been since his life had been linked to Liam's. Today had been a weary length indeed. At first the puka had simply been glad to be alive and reasonably well. Maeve's charm itched, but it was a healing itch, and he felt some strength return to his limbs. 
He kept running up to railings and barrels and iron-shod wheels just to touch them and sniff them and prove once again that they had no power to hurt him. The encounter with Ebenezer Green shook him. Had he been on his game, the puka would have nosed out what manner of man Green was before they'd even crossed the threshold. But the puka was not on his game. A whole day on the town, and he hadn't tricked so much as the price of a drink out of a living soul. The fear grew on him that Maeve's charm had cured his iron sickness at the expense of his magic. What he needed was something to knock him loose from the limited round of mortal concerns he'd been treading since Liam had freed him from the poacher's trap. He needed a bet or a challenge or a trick, something tried and true for preference, not too dangerous, that would put him on his mettle and bring Liam a bit of silver. Liam, he said, I have an idea. Tomorrow, as soon as it's light, we'll take ourselves up out of this sty to wherever it is the rich folk live. You shall sell me as a ratter for the best price you can get. Shall I so? asked Liam wearily. And what if no man needs a ratter or will not buy an Irish one? There's always a man wants to buy a dog, the puka said confidently. Liam shook his head. I will not, and there's an end. What kind of man do you take me for to sell a friend for silver money? Oh, I'd not stay sold, the puka assured him. I'd run away and meet you at Maeve's before the cat can lick her ear. And if you can't escape, what then? Will I steal you back again? It's stark mad you are, Madra. The city's gone to your head. The puka was charmed with his plan and argued it with cunning and passion, yet Liam would not be moved. It was illegal, he said, immoral and dangerous, and that was an end to it all of which confirmed the puka in his opinion that Liam was no more suited for city life than a wild deer. Were the puka not there to look after him, he'd surely have been stripped of his savings and left to starve in a ditch before he'd so much as fully exhaled the ship's air from his lungs. West, the puka thought, he'd like it out west. Tomorrow I'll think about getting him on a train. Then the puka's planning was interrupted by a furious squeal. He turned, hackles rising, and found himself nose to bristly snout with a big, ugly, foul-breathed sow. A fight's as good as a trick for clearing the mind. The puka bared his teeth and growled. The sow's amber eye glittered madly, and she wheeled and trotted back for the charge. The puka spared a glance for Liam, who was surrounded by a handful of half-grown shoats, squealing and shoving at his legs. Liam was laying about him with his knapsack, cursing and trying to keep his feet in the mired street. If he were to fall, they'd trample him, sure as taxes, and possibly eat him where he lay. Fury rose in the puka's breast, then, pure and mighty. Ducking the sow's charge, he leaped into the melee around Liam, landing square on the largest of the shoats. The pig threw him off, but not before the puka had nipped a chunk out of its ear. Spitting that out, he fastened his teeth into the nearest ham. The shoat it belonged to squealed and bolted, leaving only four and their dam for the puka to fight. He'd not endured a battle so furious since St. Patrick drove the snakes into the sea and the fair folk under hill. This fight he intended to win. At home on his own turf the puka would have made short work of the pigs. Even in his dog shape there he was faster than a bee, mighty as a bull, and tireless as the tide but weeks of iron sickness and short commons, stuck in one shape like a chicken its shell, had sapped his strength. The puka slipped in the slurry of mud and dung, a sharp trotter caught him a glancing blow. He felt the bright blood run burning down his flank, and a wave of pain and terror washed through and through him. Immortals cannot die, but they can be killed. 
Instinct told the puka that he must shift to save himself. Fear whispered that he could not shift, that he'd lost the knack, that he'd been a dog so long he'd forgotten what it felt like to have hooves or horns or two legs and a coat he could take off. Seeing her enemy falter, the sow took heart and charged, squealing like a rusty hinge, her tusks aimed like twin spears straight at the puka's soft belly. Then one fear triumphed over the other, and the puka shifted. Tossing his streaming mane, the puka screamed and aimed his heavy, unshod hooves at the sow's spine. Quick as he was, she was quicker yet, scrambling out from under his feet at the last instant, giving the puka room to turn upon the shoats around Liam like an angry sea, striking with hoof and tooth. The sow, seeing her shoats threatened, charged again, barreling towards the puka like a storm full of lightning. Wheeling, the puka reared once more, and this time his hooves crushed the sow into the mud. The puka stood over the bodies of his enemies and trumpeted his victory into the evening air. An arm snaked across his withers and clung there. Liam's voice, shaky with relief, breathed in his ear. Oh, my heart, my beauty, my champion of champions! That was a battle to be put in songs, and I shall do so, just so soon as my legs will bear me and my heart climbs down from my throat. The puka arched his neck proudly and pawed at the corpses piled at his feet. A shoat, recovering from its swoon, heaved up on its trotters and staggered away down the street, straight into the path of a bay gelding harnessed to a shiny black buggy driven by a man in a stovepipe hat. Bruised and shaken though he was, Liam was no more able to leave a horse in difficulties than swim home to Eyre. No sooner did he see the shoat run between the bay's feet and the bay shy and startle and kick its traces than he ran to its head and grabbed its harness. The bay tossed him to and fro like a terrier with a rat, but Liam hung on, murmuring soothing inanities in Irish and English until the gelding's terror calmed, and it stood, silent and shivering. Liam stroked the bay's nose and looked about him. The street was a shambles, with the corpses of his late assailants bleeding into the mud. A crowd of day-laborers stood all around, goggling with their mouths at half-cock. Off to one side, Madra the hound was licking the blood from a gash on his flank. The gelding's driver climbed down from the buggy, his cheeks as white as his snowy shirt-front. "'Thank you.' His voice, though flatly American, was kind. "'That was bravely done. I take it you know something about horses?' Liam touched his forehead with his knuckle. "'I do so, sir.' "'Ostler?' the gentleman asked. "'Back in my own country I was a trainer. Race horses.' The gentleman looked startled. "'A horse trainer. I'll be blowed. Do you mind if I ask your name?' "'It's Liam O'Casey, if it please your honour.' The gentleman laughed, showing strong teeth. "'Honour me no honours, Mr. O'Casey. I'm plain William Graves, and I breed horses.' Mr. Graves produced a pasteboard card. "'Here's my card. I've a little farm up past the orphan asylum, 85th Street, more or less. If you care to come there tomorrow, it may be that we'll find something to talk about.' Mr. Graves shook Liam's nerveless hand, climbed back up into his buggy, collected the reins, and drove off. Well, that was a piece of luck and no mistake. It was Madra's voice, but when Liam turned, he saw no dog beside him, but a tall man in a black-skirted coat as far out of fashion as it was filthy. His skin was pale, his crow-black hair was tied with a strip of leather, and his narrow eyes were set on an upward tilt, with his black brows flying above them like wings. You can be shutting your jaw now, Liam O'Casey, the puka said. I'm not such a sore sight as that, surely. "'Madra?' 
For shame in me standing before you on my two legs as fine a figure of a man as you are yourself. The puka linked his arm through Liam's and propelled him down the street. Come away to Maeve MacDonough's and stand yourself a whisky for a good day's work well done. You may stand me to one as well. Looking back over his shoulder, Liam saw a pair of cart horses in thick collars pulling a piano in a wagon over the broken bodies of the swine. My knapsack, he said sadly, my tin whistle. The works of the late lamented J. J. Callanan were beyond saving, the puka said. The tin whistle, on the other hand, he held it out to Liam, a little dented, but whole. I saved your purse, too. And my life. Liam stopped in the street and offered the puka his hand. I'm forever in your debt. The puka looked alarmed. What are you after saying, Liam O'Casey? There's no question of debt between us. Favor for favor, life for life. We're quits now. Will you be leaving me then? asked Liam. And the puka could not, for the life of him, tell whether it was with hope or dread he asked it. Not before I've had my drink, he said, and was ridiculously pleased to feel the arm in his relax its tension. I'll see you safe up to Mr. Graves's farm first. Do you think he's prepared to employ me? Of a certainty, and give you his daughter's hand in marriage, I shouldn't wonder. Liam laughed aloud. He's not much older than I, Madra. His daughter would be an infant, presuming he had one at all. This is the real world we're in, after all, not a fairy tale. Are we not? They'd reached Maeve McDonough's by now, and descended into the hot and noisy saloon. And here am I, thinking there's room enough for both in a city the size of this. New York's got life in it, my friend. I'm minded to stay a while, as long as you come down from the country from time to time and give us a tune. There's no joy in a city where you cannot hear whiskey before breakfast. Delia Sherman is the author of numerous short stories and novels for both adults and younger readers, somewhere in the historical, fantastical, comical, romantic feminist vein. She is, or has been, a teacher, an editor, a member of the Otherwise Award Mother Board, a co-founder of the Interstitial Arts Foundation, a judge of literary awards, a bookstore clerk, a gardener, a knitter, a cook, a traveler, and a flaming liberal. She lives in New York with fellow writer Ellen Kushner and is working on an endless historical novel. Wilson Fowley lives in a suburb of Vancouver, Canada, and has been reading aloud since the age of four. His life has changed recently. He lost his wife to cancer, and he changed jobs, from programming to recording voiceovers for instructional videos, which he loves doing, but not as much as he loved Heather. Cast is a production of the Brooklyn Speculative Fiction Writers. Our website is www.kaleidacast.nyc, where you can find links to all our contributors and more content to enjoy. This season's Kaleidacast production team was Brad Parks, founder, CFO, and senior producer, Rob Cameron, executive producer, Sandra Fink, managing producer, Christopher Lazuriak, managing editor, production manager. 
Marcus Song, Story Runner. Anton Borst, Editor and Sound Engineer. Carlos Luis Delgado, Editor and Sound Engineer. Jason A. Smith, Editor and Sound Engineer. Sam Schreiber, Senior Scriptwriter, Senior Editor, Sound Engineer. Holden Lee, Editor, Scriptwriter, Sound Engineer. Jason Stack, Editor, Technical Officer, and Sound Engineer. Marcy Arlen, Producer. Randy Dawn, Editor, Voice Actor. Eric Rosenfield, Chief Technical Officer. S.J. Pendergraft, Associate Editor. Aya McGuire, Associate Editor. Sadie Klein, Scriptwriter. Divinyasha Segal, Associate Editor, Voice Actor. Katherine Erickson, Associate Editor. And a special thanks to Amachai Green. Our music is used by permission of Innova Recordings and the Harry Parch Foundation. This podcast uses many sound effects from YouTube, freesound.org, and from FreeSFX at freesfx.co.uk. The Kaleidocast and all its contents are protected by a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 National License. That means you can listen all you like, but don't sell or change it, and give credit to the Kaleidocast and its authors in usage and reference. This episode has been brought to you by our generous Patreon subscribers, whose support has meant the world to us. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and sign up for more exclusive content at patreon.com slash kaleidocastnyc.